couple of years ago, a friend sent me this YouTube video of singer-songwriter Jason Mraz. He was performing at the small festival outside of Stockholm, Sweden. I mean, I like the song, all right, but the video, well, you can tell it was filmed over a decade ago. But then I saw the upload date. Do you know when I'm Yours was released as a single, when it hit number six on the Billboard Hot 100? 2008. The video was from 2007. This guy, originally from Virginia, got his start playing coffee shops across San Diego in the early aughts. And over 5,000 miles away, everyone knew every word. He'd been playing it live, but he had no future plans for the tune, not until playing that show. Here he is talking about the moment a couple of years later. I didn't even know we put out records up there, you know, but they didn't even know the words, you know. And then when we played I'm Yours, the place went even crazier. I could look down this street, what looked like, as far as my eye could see, people coming out of buildings and coming from around corners and every which way and singing and clapping. And it just absolutely freaked us out. Like, it was that moment where I was like, man, I got to make sure I'm Yours is on the next record. And I get it. Look, this may be old news to some of you, but for me... It was the moment that I realized that music had changed. In 2008, the same year he released I'm Yours and went mainstream, another incredible thing happened in Sweden. Spotify, now an industry giant, launched. And it's hard to overstate the impact it's had. In the 10 years since Daniel Ek launched his streaming service, it's transformed everything from how artists release and market their music to how we listen and how we relate to it. See, what Mraz learned by surprise, just how far and to who his music reached, is now common knowledge. And beyond just streaming, how we discover new music, the way songs are created and shaped, and who's making money, over the last 20 years, the recording industry has experienced a whiplash of disruption and has somehow come out the other end of it still standing. It's one of the few categories we can look to that has gone through a complete and full cycle of a coup. And today, we're looking at how music's old establishment has fared and where the new one is taking us next. I'm Ron Tite, and this is The Coup. Twenty years ago, two American teenagers launched a file-sharing site that nearly wiped out an entire industry. It was on college campuses with high-speed internet that Napster really took off in the fall of 99. So, uh, how many MP3s do you have on your computer? 
About 600. Maybe like 100. At its peak, nearly 60 million people used the site to swap music files from each other's computers. But the artists and the record labels have been cut out of that deal. That means they don't get paid. But you know what? When it's someone that sold 50 million records and they got 50 million fucking dollars and they're bitching about pennies, fuck you, man. <laughs> To the cyber looting resulting in billions in lost revenue, years spent in court over copyright violations, and thousands of individual lawsuits later. And over the span of just a decade, many thought it was on the verge of collapse. Music journalist Sam Wolfson reported in The Guardian last year that, quote, in the U.S., music's biggest market, annual revenues fell from $14.6 billion in 1999 to $6.3 billion in 2009, end quote. Revenues slashed in half. From paying upwards of $20 for an album to paying less each month to stream millions of them, we don't own anymore. We stream. I mean, who's actually running this industry now? And how has our relationship to music changed since file sharing and streaming turned it on its head? So in the early 2000s, it was sort of a done deal in terms of people being very accessed online. We were still in the time of CDs. We were still in, this, in the time of iTunes and figuring out that and MySpace, absolutely. But it was not nearly as sophisticated as it is today. This is Mitch Joel. He's the founder of Six Pixels Group, a fellow speaker and one of my best friends. Before getting into the digital marketing space, he was a music guy working as a journalist, and he co-founded Distort Entertainment, a record label based in Toronto that signed Canadian success stories like Lexus on Fire and Cancer Bats. After decades of working in the business and then building a career in digital marketing and advertising, Mitch has had this kind of dual role in looking at the music industry. As, as music had one major disruption, which is the digital disruption, or have there been a whole series of, of disruptions throughout the industry over, over your career? Oh, it's, it's persistent and pervasive. And I think you need to look at the multiple layers. I mean, you have to look at it from a musician standpoint, which is it's been completely disrupted. The recording process, the instruments, the amplification of it, the effects that you layer on top of it, you can look at it from the industry side where just the ways in which people are informed that the music exists goes from things like radio, MTV, into the digital age, into things like MySpace, into like, you know, SoundCloud now, into YouTube. You can look at it in terms of how the music is distributed from physical to digital. You can look at it how it goes even from digital to cloud from, yeah. I mean, it, it has been disrupted at every single layer and every single side. If the establishment at one point in the music industry was the labels and the retailers and the radio stations and the artists, who do you think represents the new establishment? Us, the people, and where we spend our time and energy. It could be YouTube today or Bandcamp tomorrow or Instagram. We are the ones who are yeah. creating this content, sharing this content, deciding what we listen to. We are controlling. There is no DJ whispering in our ears. We are searching out those playlists. We are searching out those bands. We, the people. Mm -hmm. And I still believe there are always gatekeepers. I just do look at the fact that like your YouTube views 
your Facebook likes, your followers on Twitter, how that person engages and how people react and do it is, is the true moment. I mean, you can do that, but can you do that consistently yeah. and pervasively over a career? And I think only the artist can do it. And in return, because of the infrastructure as it's created, only we decide what the platform is going to be and where we're going to spend our time. I mean, just think about how absurd it is that we used to own CDs and then we were downloading them and now we're into the streaming yeah. services. It's true. Streaming services came to fruition, but there had to be the adoption. And boy, did we adopt. Last year, Blake Montgomery of BuzzFeed News reported that, quote, Royalties from companies like Spotify and Apple Music made up two-thirds of the music industry's revenue in 2017. And Spotify metrics are now so important that they factor into album releases, touring schedules, promotion, and even artist collaborations. End quote. And in September, The Verge reported that according to the Recording Industry Association of America, Revenue made from streaming services shot up over 25% in the first half of 2019, which they say represents approximately 80% of the music industry's overall revenue. I mean, the turnaround streaming has given this industry is pretty incredible. Spotify was the first to hit 100 million subscribers back in April with twice as many unpaid users. Apple Music trails the giant with 56 million paid subscribers. So for now, there's little that could go against the stream. But what tech innovations and trends can we expect to see more of in the future? I do believe that people will want more and more access to talent. And I think that having things like smart audio and interactive speakers, your Alexas and Google Homes and series of the world, will change our relationship to, to music. I believe that they will have these more interactive platforms where they can share more information about music, not just here's the song and here's how it streams. I really do believe in, in what is now a contentious platform, but the whole hologram space. I think, mm -hmm. I think that there will be a massive interest, especially with things like virtual reality headsets, of like your ability to suddenly be in a 1969 a cavern in Liverpool watching the Beatles and feel and, and have it look like you're there. I think that that's a very real inevitability. I look to people and artists like Imogene Heap and look what she's doing with yeah. technology yeah. and access and putting her music on the blockchain and stuff like that. And yeah. as yeah, kooky yeah. as it sounds, I like, I really do think this is early days of thinking I, I mean, I've never been more excited about music with the understanding that what streaming pays as a form of, of revenue is terrible. It's hard when that is how you typically made your money and that is the model that was used for so long. I'm not saying it's right or fair. I think it's somewhat agnostic, but it's sad that when the channel goes, you and I could make an argument for, yeah, we'll just make music and put it there and publish it there and all the other good stuff will come from it. It's hard for people who just don't see that or, or understand how that works. Unlike Napster and the rest of the turn of the century file sharing sites that got us here, streaming does pay. But especially for the artists, it pales in comparison to the CD boom that came before it. But before we unpack the intricacies of what music is worth now, first, how is the industry's platform influencing what artists are uploading to it? 
producer Allie Graham gave Charlie Harding a call. Hey, Charlie, this is Allie. How are you? Hold on. I, one second. I have my friendly uh, studio partner, my cat, running around <laughs> and literally walking on my keyboard. Charlie's a songwriter, producer, multi-instrumentalist, and he's the co-host of Vox's Switched On Pop. where he deconstructs top 40 hits to tell listeners how they're made and what they mean. I try to bring a songwriter's perspective and a producer's ear to contemporary music and help a general audience understand what the heck is going on. I mean, today, people aren't usually recording with acoustic instruments in large recording spaces. Uh, So much is happening on a computer and the sounds that are available through that are endless. And so in many ways, I think that the way that we're listening, what we're listening to has evolved so much that Mm -hmm. it can actually be hard to know what exactly is happening. Charlie and his co-host, musicologist Nate Sloan, do deep dives on artists' newest releases and look at trends they're hearing across genres. Recently, they took a look at how streaming services are reshaping the industry and changing how popular music sounds. Even though streaming has been available for a decade, what we're seeing is a real significant shift in market power, which is actually changing the way that music sounds. We'll start with song length. The standard American pop song sort of comes in around three minutes and 30 seconds as, as sort of like the rule of thumb because the phonograph, the sort of you know original recording device, would have a limit of how much huh. sound you could put on it. And so that kind of set the standard of what our expectations of what a song is. Songs got longer from the 70s up through the 90s because the long playing record enabled people to make longer and longer things. And the downward trend in shorter songs has been happening since the 90s. And so artists experiment with the sort of boundaries of the form within which they're working. Last year, Quartzy reported that, quote, over the last few years, the number of songs in the Hot 100 under two and a half minutes skyrocketed from just around 1% of the songs in 2015 to over 6% in 2018, end quote. And while this is a part of a decades-long trend in song length fluctuation, this kind of influence validates streaming as both the industry's dominant hosting platform and as its modern music player. But Charlie doesn't think this means we'll just be hearing short songs from here on out. If you're an artist and you're making music that is sort of streaming first, yeah, you're going to think a bit about the format. Um, But if your song needs to be five minutes to express itself, um, for example, if we look at Travis Scott's Sicko Mode, one of the biggest songs of last year, Mm. played at the Super Bowl, right? Like mega hit. That song was, I think, over five minutes. And Mm. that song was an opus. It went through all of these different styles and sounds of hip hop. It was brilliant. And I, I really don't think that aesthetically we have anything to be too concerned about. But what he hasn't seen much precedence for is the restructuring of the standard song. Song structures usually last for decades. Even when genres and fads come and go, the actual structure of a song is usually pretty solid, and we're starting to see some changes. See, while song length was impacted by the physical formats that came before, the restructuring of music we're hearing now has everything to do with the incentives of streaming. 
because the streaming platforms require a song to have played for at least 30 seconds before it counts mm. as a play, artists are more concerned than ever with making sure that people listen to that 30 second mark by grabbing their ten- attention immediately. And there's a number of ways of doing this. One way, jump right into the chorus. Post Malone does this frequently. Mm-hmm. You kind of feel like you just like step into the room and the song started. Another way, tease the chorus. Charlie refers to this as the pop overture, which is basically like a mini hint of the chorus hook, but done in a way that you don't get the whole thing. You hear this on things like Ariana Grande's NASA, Drake's God's Plan, everywhere. And so people want to grab your collar and say, listen, this is important. And along with that change in chorus placement, He's also seeing a loosening of verse chorus form where really since uh, the 50s, the verse chorus form has been the dominant song form where you have you know verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus. And I think largely driven by the dominance of hip hop, we are sort of seeing that fall apart as well because in hip hop, you is a little simplified. It's usually verse chorus, verse, chorus, verse, maybe another chorus at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes there's not even choruses. And what we're seeing, I think, is a lot of innovation in the way that people are thinking about song structures pulling from hip hop in which, you know, a song like Sicko Mode can very fluidly move between different sounds mm-hmm. and is really driven by the vocal. And that's exciting. And alongside these structural shifts, the strict lines of genre are fading too. And that has a lot to do with the playlists these streaming services are building and recommending to us. What we've seen is that there is a very interesting change in the kinds of playlists that people are listening to. People are not listening as much to uh, genre-based playlists as they are to context-based playlists, Mm -hmm. like uh, Your Favorite Coffee Shop or Peaceful Piano or Deep Focus. uh, Or, you know, if you're going to get pumped up for a workout. You could listen across the world of music from Little Richard to Drake and everything in between. And so I think that the way that we're listening is actually more comfortable moving between genres, whereas pop radio uh, might have been more genre focused. Now we just kind of get it all mashed together. Making the overall mainstream sound, I don't know, just a lot more fluid. And he says Lizzo's recent album, Cause I Love You, which came out this past April, is a great example. Her music, when you listen to it, you get first a soul song. It's like kind of like Aretha Franklin thing. And then you go to like a Prince track with Juice. And then you you have tracks that sound like Led Zeppelin. And you have songs that sound like you know beautiful ballads. It's all over the place. What holds it together is her consistent narrative and message. But genre feels like maybe you know, while we want to pay a respect to those traditions that have developed, artists maybe feel more comfortable trying on different genres, both because of how we're listening, what we want to listen to, to sort of fit the narrative of the song. If you're going to have a moody, sad song, Mm -hmm. make it a blues. So, the industry's old rules, you know, songs needing to start in a certain way, artists having to stick to one genre, and the music itself needing to be created with certain tools in certain places. Well, those rules have been rewritten and reimagined. And this change in how music is being categorized for us isn't just affecting the new music we're hearing. 
It's impacting the way we listen to. I would say that there's all kinds of new listening behaviors that are coming about. We are more connected, spending more time on screens than ever before, which is to say that you know, we are probably listening more ambiently to music in the background because it's so ubiquitous. When it comes to what we're more likely to listen to for long periods of time, playlists have replaced albums and EPs. Sure, you can point to more demand for variety as a reason for that, but there's no denying that the effective and ongoing promotion of playlists by the streaming companies influenced that change. In an NPR piece about the future of streaming by Paula Mejia, journalist Liz Pelly says it's all about keeping us listening, whether that's to our new favorite album or to the 100-hour-long calmness playlist. And Pelly says that's resulted in, quote, the situation where music that is being surfaced by the platform is music people won't turn off. This background experience where music really isn't as intentional of a thing. End quote. This always-on relationship to our music sounds similar to the way we interact with most social media. An infinite scroll with no sustained attention in sight. And while he's wary of crediting tech too much, the reality is, with just a few streaming companies dominating the market, they've got a lot of our data. And with that, they've got a lot of influence over what and who we listen to. Spotify, Apple, and Amazon control about two-thirds of that marketplace. So, you know, where in the past, Clear Channel and other radio conglomerates in the 90s and 2000s had that market power, yeah. it's now moving much more to those platforms. And so now the curatorial power is what is really, I think, shifting how people are listening. But there's there there are other platforms. I don't mean to say that these are the only platforms totally. where people listen. Yeah. Uh, SoundCloud, uh, TikTok, and I think that these platforms do have... Uh, certainly different strategies. YouTube especially has, I, I think, its own strategy that it is this mix of user-generated content. So they've got a lot of curatorial power. But it's more complicated than just an all-knowing algorithm that's just feeding us the music it wants us to listen to. People are also demonstrating algorithmically what they totally. like to listen to. So it's not entirely a top-down relationship. But that said, we are being uh, sort of guided into a very small set of options because even if you're turning the radio dial, you, know, you have dozens of options there. When you're on your phone, you're going to see six albums immediately. You might scroll a little bit, but you're probably not going to see quite as many things as you might scroll through on the radio dial. So even though we have everything available to us, we're, you know, all lazy and eventually are just going to click on the thing that looks like, oh, yeah, that looks good enough. And while the companies will continue to send us new recommendations, there's not a lot of incentive for the algorithm to show you things it doesn't already know you like. So just like with TV, data-driven companies have studied our listening habits and repackaged them back to us. And while it's awesome when the algorithm tells us about an album we end up loving, there is a downside. These companies that are controlling uh, playlisting and, and, and really sort of guiding our listening are fulfilling a sort of teleological desire for towards monopoly, right? You're talking about some of the biggest companies in the world, yeah. especially with Apple and Amazon and, and Google who also participates. And they really want to have an integrated experience across their entire set of platforms, hardware, software, and so mm -hmm. on. 
Um, it's challenging when especially some of these players control the entire device ecosystem as well mm-hmm. because you know if you buy something on Bandcamp I honestly don't even know how I might listen to that across my devices everywhere right whereas like the default installed applications on the phone are where people are going to go and I'm you know unfortunately I go and I think the reality is that we are all healthier and have a better set of I think I think our entire ecosystem of the arts is stronger when there is more competition, more locally grown and, and facilitated and produced and supported arts. And with fewer players with a lot of power, Charlie worries that the fight for market dominance and ownership may extend beyond just distribution and streaming revenue. He thinks it's also influencing how industry players and artists alike are approaching musical ownership. In a world in which intellectual property is so important, is uh, increasing amounts of litigiousness within the music industry, trying to make claims on parts of music that have never been ownable. It's a very complicated history here, but the short of it is like you can really only own lyrics and melody and how they're tied together and the sort of overall composition of a piece. But things like rhythm, timbre, song structure form, um, these things uh, do not fit within uh, current intellectual property frameworks. And we've seen uh, already increasing amounts of litigiousness of people who are trying to copyright a sound like that sounds like the other thing because it might use maybe the same synthesizer, but um, it doesn't actually share necessarily the same notes or like shares some of the same notes. That behavior, I think, um, is going to be very complicated to sort out. Mm-hmm. I take the stance that intellectual property and in music um, often actually hinders the ability for people to create new things. All music is to some degree of re- reference. Totally. I do worry about the direction that the importance of IP and music takes upon uh, how people might be uh, trying to take from each other uh, because the revenue is so consolidated in this industry. But beyond the ownership battles, Charlie says what he's most concerned about is who's in the room and who's getting institutional support. The reality is that music labels, uh, the recording industry still has a lot of power to be able to, um, to pick winners. Yeah. And the thing that concerns me most isn't new in the, in the music industry, mm. but it, it really is about equity of who gets access to make their art and distribute it. The music industry is an extremely fragmented business as much as it is consolidated because you basically have the entire talent pool are like not really paid employees in a managerial relationship, even though they have a thing called a manager. They're kind of like small independent production companies that are all making their stuff, but we don't see a lot of labor oversight. Um, And there's, I think a lot of, I think on all of the creative industries, a fear of like, we don't want to mess up the special sauce of the thing which is making us money. And while the streaming era has made pay inequities more glaring, the issue of artist compensation isn't really that straightforward compensation and what is fair um it's not an easy issue because the reality is when we're paying out royalties per song there is a certain place where it's impossible to run a business effectively right like even spotify loses money constantly which is part of their argument of why they can't 
pay more on royalties and they're actually i think making efforts to i i documented evidence that they have worked to find ways to pay lower royalty rates um or stream more things where certain songs they have they pay smaller royalties because of special relationships with certain labels and charlie is one of many musicians scratching his head about how to translate listens into dollars for streaming platforms and artists Last year, Canadian folk musician Danny Michelle took to Facebook to talk about something many in the community had been whispering about behind closed doors. In the now viral post, he wrote, the conversations backstage with other musicians have always been about music, family, guitars, friends, art, etc. But in 2018, that conversation changed. Everywhere I go, musicians are quietly talking about one thing, how to survive. End quote. And even though his recent single, Purgatory Cove, performed well, the numbers were stark. Quote, this song has been in the top 20 charts, CBC, Radio 2 and 3, for 10 weeks, climbed to number 3. In 2018, that equals $44.99 in sales. End quote. And here he is speaking about it on CBC's Metro Morning last November. My sales are like 95% gone. Mm. And and to anyone who's, you know, and uh, struggling, uh, it's like, it's, it's the make or break moment. Daniel Sanchez at Digital Music News compared per play royalties across streaming platforms using US dollars as the standard. And as Charlie says, even within Spotify's model, they don't necessarily pay the same royalties to every artist or every label. But still, the average payout for an artist is telling. According to Sanchez's calculations, the platform pays them 0.00473 cents per stream. Remember the pennies? Yeah, less than those. It's a far cry from the share artists were raking in from iTunes' 99 cents per download system, let alone their cut of CD sales. And while a lot of us have just a handful of artists and playlists we listen to regularly, artist payouts don't necessarily reflect that loyalty. This past July, Quartz's Dan Koff broke down how Spotify and Apple Music use your subscriptions to pay for artists you may not even listen to. See, most streaming platforms use a pro-rata system for payment, which means, quote, they take all the money generated from users, whether by advertisements or subscriptions, and put it in a big pot. They then divide that pot by the total share of streams each artist received. So, if Apple Music gave $100 million of their revenues to artists in a month, and Drake's songs accounted for 1% of all streams that month, then Drake and the writers of Drake's songs would receive $1 million. End quote. And while the math here is wonderfully simple, Some in the industry think this kind of payout puts smaller musicians at a disadvantage and want platforms like Spotify to switch to a user-centric payment system, which Koff says would, quote, ensure that fans feel that their listening habits are directly connected to the success of their favorite artists. In 2018, Spotify's former director of economics co-authored a paper breaking down the possible outcomes of moving away from a pro-rata system with Koff reporting his finding that switching could be, quote, so expensive to manage that it might reduce overall revenues for artists, outweighing the benefits of a more equal distribution, end quote. 
Last January, Victor Luckerson, who's over at The Ringer, argued that the pro-rata model may be helping to wipe out music's middle class. So much so that some have even worked to game the system over the years. Wolfpack released Sleepify, the album, last week on Spotify. This album's different than our previous albums. In 2014, funk band Wolfpack capitalized on a Spotify loophole, collecting 20 grand in royalties by asking users to stream its completely silent album, Sleepify, on repeat while they slept. The band later used the money to fund an admission-free tour for their fans before Spotify pulled the album. Joining us with more on that ahead of the IPO is the artist behind Sleepify, Wolfpack's leader, Jack Stratton. Jack, it's good to have you. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Let's rock. <laughs> how many how many airings total have you gotten or did you get uh five million and it was uh it was removed under the terms violation that artists sh the artists shan't make money that that term spotify responded to the stunt saying it was clever but they haven't reacted as playfully to other instances of both artists and fans finding loopholes and gaming the per play system and of course they aren't I mean, it's easy to miss, but Spotify is one of the many revolutionary tech giants that, despite major success, still isn't profitable. So if artists aren't the ones making the money, and if Spotify isn't making the money, who is? You know, for as long as they did, the big major record companies screamed that they were losing money and they were losing money. They're making more money than ever now. This is Jake Gold. For years, he was a judge on Canadian Idol, and he's also one of the country's most iconic music managers. And we have him to thank for discovering the tragically hip. And he's right. Despite the chaos of the early 2000s, recording companies, especially the three major rights holders, Universal, Sony, and Warner Music Groups, well, they've been doing very well. Like stats last year said they were, you know, 70% of revenues at the height of the CD market. Yeah. Okay. But if you look at their overall costs, they've shrunk their costs a lot. They don't have overhead like they used to, right? They don't have warehouses. Huh. They don't have manufacturing plants. They don't have nearly as much staff. You know, their marketing staff are thinner. Their radio promo staff isn't as big because radio has consolidated. So there more decisions are made at a national level than at a local level. Have they shrunk their cost by 30%? I'd say yes, yeah. if yeah, not yeah, more. Yeah. Right. So, and they're only going to be making more and more. While it may have seemed like streaming companies would have left the old guard to fend for themselves, Recording companies seem to be their biggest benefactors. So Jake isn't so sure that this has been the takeover some have boasted. Sure, if you're HMV or were HMV, things have changed. But if you're a manager, well, Jake says, other than bringing in more digitally oriented staff and needing to create more content for more platforms, well, the business model is mostly intact. And while the means of delivery have changed, Jake says what makes or breaks an artist hasn't. Well, you still have to be awesome to be successful. You know, we, we used to say, okay, like, you know, distribution, all of that and radio, all of those things, they're just pipe. So, yeah, you know. A band that sucks on 8-track is still going to suck on Spotify. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The problem is there's more bands that suck because the barrier to entry has lessened. Sure, it's easier than ever to publish and share your music. The access is unprecedented. 
but you still need to win fans and followers. So with so much competition, how do you stand out? See, there used to be just a few suited up star makers who would give the thumbs up or down, and now there are thousands, millions even. And while radio's singular influence has faded, Jake says the power of individual tastemakers has not. Curators are more important than ever. These streaming playlists, a lot of people see that as the new radio, right? Because, you know, radio used to curate your music. They would decide what they thought was really great. At certain hmm. level, you couldn't get in there unless, unless you had a lot of money. Right. Um, and it wasn't necessarily payola. It was just how the system worked. Sure, right? sure. That you need to be able to hire certain people who had relationships and so on. And so independent promotion and those kinds of things. But now, you, you know, you look at the bigger playlists some are algorithm curated. Some are people curated. There's also companies um, that will promote your music to playlists. And so they'll maybe work the indie playlists. So they're like the new radio promotion people. So they'll work the independent playlisters or the YouTubers or the SoundCloud people and those kinds of things. And especially on the Spotify and the Apple Music They'll work the independent playlists who are up on Spotify to get the track into the algorithm. Right. So eventually Spotify picks it up and says, oh, this needs to go into this, this to everybody else. Yeah. So like, you know, one of my clients is still like as three weeks ago, I got a notification from Spotify. You've been added to this playlist. Now, this is a track that's two years old. That's still for some reason, being picked up on different algorithms, and now it's being dropped into another one of those Spotify curated playlists. You know, right. there was a there was Rap Caviar, which was like the the be all, the end all on Spotify. And the guy who uh, Tuma Basa, who ran that, who was the, the guy, he was like the most powerful guy in hip hop, <laughs> right? Because if you got yeah. on that playlist, right, you right, know, right. Okay, so if you like me had no idea what rap caviar was before Jake mentioned it, it's a big deal. With over 10 million people following the playlist curated by Spotify's former global programming head of hip-hop, Tuma Basa, it's been called the most influential playlist in music. I mean, Netflix's recent rap talent search, Rhythm & Flow, which Time Magazine referred to as the best TV competition show in years, awarded its winner a chance to perform live on, you guessed it, Spotify's Rap Caviar. These kind of power lists exist across genres. And while getting featured may give you more listens, it doesn't guarantee you followers, let alone fans, or as the kids call them, stands. Basically, this generation's version of groupies. That engagement, it can't be automated. Jake says the best measure of whether an artist can build a sustainable career isn't the audience they're building online, but the ones turning up at live shows. You know, you hear about these acts with millions and millions of plays who, you know, are playing at the Rivoli, which is a 150 seat bar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> you right. Know? So it's not necessarily translating to like a big following and, and big yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's one thing to put stuff out because it's easy access to put it out. It's another thing to be successful and have people respond to it. So what do you then look for in Charisma. an act and has that Charisma. changed? Charisma. Charisma. All the time. But but the musical ability has to come first, No, right? No? No. 
No, even the hip when we first saw them, they were kind of a ragtag kind of band. Bar band. Yeah. 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 But Gord Downey opened his mouth and it was like less than 20 seconds. It was like instant. It was like, I just got hit by a truck. Yeah. And I turned to my partner and I said, we're signing these guys tonight. I didn't know what the bar was. The the local or the bar the bar of the where, bar of like how good right, someone right. you know that that greatness. Yeah. Until I saw him. And here's where Jake's experience trumps trends and innovations. You can call it gut feel, but it truly is an involuntary response. Right. You feel something that you didn't feel before hmm. you saw oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, okay? okay, so it's, yeah. you know, people say, oh, the hair on my arms, the hair on the back of my neck, like right, all yeah, of that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. stuff. But the reality is, is, you know, you just got moved. Yeah. And if they can move me, my attitude is then they could probably move a lot of other people. Yeah. And I'm kind of cynical. And just as the live performance sells Jake on an artist, it's also the thing that keeps them in business. There's nothing that's going to compete with the live experience, right? Because people still want to gather mm-hmm. with like-minded people and experience something together. You know, the biggest acts in the world are the ones that are selling out the stadiums sure. and, you know, because still the money from a business standpoint is in playing live and selling t-shirts right, and right, merch right. and all the other stuff. While recent innovations and takeovers have been great for the old establishment suits, the job of an artist has only got harder. Jake says not only do their music and performance abilities have to be better than ever to stand out, they have to take on more work offstage too. That includes everything from running your own social accounts to promoting next month's live show in Brandon, Manitoba. That marketing used to be paid for by the record companies. But now... Those kind of dollars don't exist anymore. Those right. marketing dollars. Even though they're making more money than they've ever made. And it's not just marketing. They're not giving the big dollars like they used to. In America, you maybe you can get big advances if you're somebody. Yep. And they're not doing the artist development like they used to. They're waiting for us, guys like me, managers, yep. to make it happen. And then they're going to step up and go, okay, we'll take it from here. So here's how things have shaken out. Artists are making less, they've got less institutional support, and now companies are trying to eat into their main revenue stream, touring. So maybe the biggest, the biggest change is the middle has disappeared. The middle of the middle talent. Yeah. 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 Now they can still go out and play live and build a following and all that, but they're not going to nearly have the same amount of reach with their music. But at the end of the day, you know, it's like, you know, overperform, overservice the super fans. And hopefully they'll stick with you for a long time. Beyond tips for musicians trying to thrive in this current iteration of the industry, other categories can learn from the mistakes music executives have made too. They should have just licensed Napster right from the beginning. It was a startup. They could have went in and bought it. They had enough money to buy it. Yep. They could have bought it, licensed it, and turned it into. But they had all this infrastructure that they had to take care of. Their sales teams and their manufacturing and like we, and the, the record stores. It's like there was this whole infrastructure that they had to support. But they didn't see it. And then when people started stealing from them, they realized, okay, this is out of control. We're going to have to be a part of this. Instead of litigating against new players like Napster, learn to do what they do better and before you become obsolete. 
Last year, Eric Bohm, a data artist and designer based out of Texas, published an impressive report analyzing every music recommendation he received over an entire year with the hope of learning how effective the systems were and more about his own listening habits. And while streaming platforms like Spotify did a decent job of suggesting Bohm new music, he had a hard time actually taking the algorithm's advice. And really, I'm the same way. Here's the thing. Quote, When people would recommend music, they had a chance to say why they thought I would like it. They would qualify the recommendation, which is something missing from playlists today. Those explanations also induced a type of social pressure. I felt like I had to listen and I had to pay attention so I could talk about the music later, end quote. See, this is what the new establishment, streaming companies, have not figured out yet. For me, the thing about music, my favorite part is it's best when it's shared. When I take a chance on new music, it's not because an algorithm told me I'd like it. It's because my friend sent it to me over Facebook, saying it reminded him of our first year of university. Or because it's my kid's favorite new song that will finally make him go to bed. Finally. Or because it's the song I had my first wedding dance to. I know it's cheesy, but it's also true. See, discovery will only truly die if we cede all that power to the algorithms. If we cede that enjoyment of passing something great along to other people. For artists, these major shifts, that all may be out of their control. But as consumers, as fans of music, all we have is control over what we listen to, what work we buy, who shows we see live. So sure, keep your monthly subscriptions. I know I will. Come on, we all need access to that workout pump-up playlist. But for the mid-level and emerging artists we love, it wouldn't hurt to tune our new listening habits just a bit. Whether it's buying the new album off Bandcamp, even if you stream it later, donating to a GoFundMe for someone's next project, showing up to a live show or two, or even just letting people know you love what they do. Hell, why not help your favorite band game the streaming system? Just kidding, Spotify. I think the most important night in my comedy career was the first night. Because look, it's really easy for any one of us to go out and see Jerry Seinfeld, Dave Chappelle, or Bill Burr. It's really easy to go see the people who have put in the time and developed their craft to the point that there's no risk in us paying the money to get there. But the first night, that's not so easy. Because the comedian or the band might suck. But they don't get to the second night until they have the first And for that, they need you. If you like music, go to someone's first night. Thanks to our guests, Mitch Joel, Charlie Harding, and Jake Gold. You can check out Charlie's podcast, Switched on Pop, wherever you listen. Today's episode was produced and written by Ali Graham with Chris Connolly. The coup is mixed by Chandra Bullockon and Ali Graham. Our theme song is by the superb Jim Guthrie, and additional music is by Artlist and the Blue Dot Sessions. The coup is made by Church and State Podcasts for Rogers Frequency Network. I'm your host and executive producer, Ron Tite. See you next week on The Coup. 
Hi, it's Jake Gold, and you're listening to The Coup with Wrong Tight. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Jake.